I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love every single thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it's given me life. There's one guy who's walking around here with a stupid grin on. I won't call his name, but he walks around with a sign and wants to hug or something like that. I've watched it. You see, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous to watch people. <laughs> you hear a lot of people saying, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And, oh, if it wasn't alcohol, I just love Alcoholics Anonymous. What I do is I watch what they do. Because <laughs> this is a program of doers. And I've been watching this guy. He's walking around. I got it. He don't know what he's grinning about, and I'm pretty sure of that. It's just that stupid grin, you know, when you get newly sober. <laughs> and you don't really know what you're laughing at, but you, you just got that feeling, you know. And uh, I watched him because I was just like him when I finally got to Alcoholics Anonymous. He loves to hug me. Oh, man, I love to hug him, especially the girls. Ooh, who did I love to hug him? You know. Because prior to that, when I hugged a girl, I hugged her kind of this way, you know. Because <laughs> I didn't want them to think I was nasty. You know. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, some girls said, no, don't hug me like that. Don't hug me. And I learned how to hug them. Now, that to me was a fringe benefit of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I didn't know I was huggable. I didn't know I was huggable. The other thing they used to do is say, oh, Milton, you sure got a cute fish. <laughs> and I'd look around for it. I've never seen it, but you know. But if you have a jaded mind like mine, you think something else. <laughs> you think, oh, yeah, this one's ready. <laughs> That's what you think. Some of the guys won't talk about it. I talk about everything about me. I've learned to do it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was told by my sponsor that I could pick my nose and flick them if I wanted to, and somebody would understand it. <laughs> so I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous to totally undress as much of me as I can, because I don't want to have a wall between me and you. Because I'll die of terminal uniqueness if I don't, if I don't tear this wall down. And I got started in Alcoholics Anonymous. It did not matter. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if I knew, I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt for some reason, if I stayed where I was, I was at at the time, one second longer, I remember the thought. If you stay here one second longer, you'll die. And I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous because they didn't want to die. I have found out for me that this program is about living and dying. It's not about having fine homes or having wonderful relationships with other people. It's not about any of marriages. It's not about anything like that I have found. I've found out it's about living and dying. And Lord knows if you don't want to die, you're in the place so that you can learn how to live. And I'm grateful for that. I've, uh, I like to get stuff out of the way because I don't like to have things stand between me and you. I have just recently got a shock on my life. <laughs> I'm trying to... Yet what they call, what do they call that kind of uh, citizenship, not citizenship, landed immigrant status here. And uh, you're right away and they want the, your police record and all this stuff like that. And uh, they wrote back to me recently and said they wanted a little more. They wanted an FBI report. 
Now, I thought, I was told back in 1967 that a charge against me back many, many years ago, 40 years ago, the records had been sealed. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. It popped up here again. My past popped up again. And uh, there's this big embezzlement charge sitting up there. And this embezzlement charge has a history to it. The history of that embezzlement charge was the first time I got to know a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because the judge said that I'm going to suspend your sentence and put you on a year probation. If you go to these, see these friends of mine who are members of Alcoholics Anonymous, I won't let this appear as a record, and thus I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought this was in the year 1948. They say it was the night, the, the, the embezzlement charges in 1951. And so I'm not going to argue with that. But that's when I first got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to tell you something. I did not believe I was an alcoholic. And there's no doubt in my mind tonight, there's today, there's somebody sitting in this room. No matter what the evidence is, <laughs> you don't think you're an alcoholic. I know all about that. You know, I know all about that. Because by that time, I had been arrested at least 20 other times. I had been in four nut wards. I know how to make love to myself in a straitjacket. Some of you may, have, may or may not have done that. You wrap yourself real tight. You know, they wrap you real tight with that one. I had already lost a wife and two children. And I did not think I was an alcoholic. Now, God in infinite wisdom had just got my attention just for a second. He introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I bumped around in those meetings because I knew the probation officer would put me in jail if I didn't report. And as soon as I got an opportunity, I went into show business because that's what I thought would be the answer to my life. I just knew if I get in show business, that would be the answer to my life. Anything that's good that's happened to me you know, and it's, it's been a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. A member of Alcoholics Anonymous put me on a, sh a TV show back in New York, New York. And I stayed with him for a little while, and his fan mail got better, and he told me about it. He was glad to have me there, so I quit it, you know, just to show him how much he really needed me. Now, see, the truth of that is that I knew I wasn't worthy of it anyway. You see, I come from one of those Bible Belt homes where Jesus watched you all the time. You know, he had his binoculars <laughs> and just watched him peep around. That's, little, that's my little sucker down here. Let me get him. I just knew he was going to get me. I knew that. You talk about going to hell, I knew I was going to hell anyway. What's the point in being good when you know you're going to hell? You know, I can imagine myself, if any, you know, any of you know anything biblically about the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, I knew there was going to be a fourth one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Milton. I knew that. So there was no point in being good. So I had to find some way to keep God from getting me. And so I quit. I got another big break and went on another big nationwide TV show. Some of you may know it. It may date some of you, but that's all right. I'm dated. It's okay. Uh, a show called Show of Shows. Some of the, it was one of the biggest shows I had going. And I tell you this because my father, I choose to call him God. You see, I believe I'm the son of a rich father. There's nothing too good for his child. So he gave me the best. And I know today why he gave me the best was because he was just simply trying to get my attention. And I went on this show and I worked a while on this show. And the guy's wife walked up to me and said, Milton, you're upstaging my husband. 
So I quit them too. In fact, got drunk at them. And uh, Rod opened the door and gave me another big break. And I worked with this group called the Dominoes, Billy Ward and the Dominoes. And we toured all over the country. And I'll tell you this story because if you're new or if you're old, those old men back in AA many years ago said to me a couple of two, three things. I always like to share. They said to me, Milton, they don't make black and white whiskey because it all gets you drunk. You see, because they knew the mind of an alcoholic. They knew my mind that I might say, well, you know, if you're black like I am, white man got his foot on your neck, you're not going to get anywhere in life, you know. What else did they left you to do? But get some old menial job, you know. Learn how to say yes and no, sir, boss. They knew I might say something like that. And so they tried to cut the ground out from under me to keep me from dying. And if you're new here, we will cut the ground out from under you so that you can stay. Yeah. And they said something else to me. They said, Milton, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous have to love you. All the resentment might get them drunk. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I really like that one now. I liked it today, you know, but in those days, I don't know if you're like I am, you know, you know when the bed spins around, you know, half-loading the bed spinning round and round and round and just going round and it never stops. And you, you know, we say, oh, God, please stop this bed. You know, I'll do anything. You know, you make all those great promises. You know, strange thing about alcoholics and al alcoholics now, we, we get to terms like God and we act like we're so strange to the word. Drunks are the prayingest folks I know. Pray all the time. Please get me off this. I'll never do it again. You know. You know. And you make all... I'll go to church the rest of my life. Those are some of the promises. Then you say, oh, better yet, just send me one somebody to love me just like I am. That's the cry of every alcoholic. Just to love me like I am. And here this man, John, was saying to me, Milton, here's a whole room full of people that love you just like you are. And I could not see that. How could anybody love a person like me? How could anybody love a guy that ran away from his wife time and time again? How can anybody love a person that took the money and the bread out of his kid's mouth? How can anybody love somebody that wasn't there for them even when they were born? How could somebody love a human being like me? How could somebody love a human being like me that was skinny and scrawny? That was a wimp? How could anybody love anybody like me? How can anybody love a human being who's got corns all over his feet and who's ashamed of himself? How can anybody love a human being who's ashamed of his own mother and father? How could you love me? But John said, here's a whole room full of people that have to love you. And I couldn't hear that. And he said something else to me. He said, Milton, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And I said, she <laughs> And I had to die some more. Now, the important thing about this part of my life was that I had to remember that all the time. So when I went with this group, the Dominoes, I told these people about my drinking. Now, I didn't tell them about the jails. Now, I'm not. I do, you know, I do a lot of dumb things. I'm not stupid. You know, I didn't tell them about all the stuff I did. I told them that my wife, then wife, didn't understand me, you know. And if I could just get rid of her, I'd be all right. I didn't tell him about the jails and me running away from home and doing. I didn't tell him about that. And I told him if that could happen in my life, I wouldn't have to drink again. And I'm standing here to tell you that for 12 years I didn't drink. 
But I want to tell you also that it was the most 12 miserable years of my life. The most miserable. Because when you can't put your track shoes on and run, it hurts. You see, I don't know. I'm saying it hurts. But in retrospect, I didn't know when I was hurting. I didn't know that. Now, I don't know. Some people seem to know when they're hurting. I never knew when I was hurting. I didn't know that I was uncomfortable in my skin. I didn't know that what was going on around me kept me uncomfortable. I didn't have that kind of brain or that kind of brilliance. All I knew was that things weren't right for me. And when I took a drink, everything seemed to get okay. Now, because I, I didn't know that okayness was relieving the pain. I didn't know I was suffering the pain of life. I didn't know that. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous not even knowing when I was in pain. Now, some people get here knowing that. I didn't know that. All I knew was when I drank, things were different. So for 12 of those years, I didn't drink, so I was left to live with that thing, that feeling. I remember some of those feelings because I wasn't drinking then. That if anybody knew me, they'd run the other way. If a girl really knew that I was a wimp, she'd have nothing to do with me. Because you can't walk up to a girl and say, Honey, would you like to go out with a wimp? You can't do that. You can't walk up to another guy and say, Hey, look, dude, I feel less than you. But these are the feelings I had. I didn't want to tell another man I feel less than him. He would say automatically, Well, man, you need to get your stuff together. And I had been doing that all my life. Getting you, you hear, and I'm going to use the term, you hear people in alcoholics and I'm saying, well, I'm trying to get my shit together. Well, I would get it together, and my getting it together always took me to jail. So it's not about getting it together at all. If you're new here, if you think it's about getting it together, I suggest that you've already done that. That's why you're here. It's real simple. There's nowhere in the book it tells me i got to get it together. They tell me God could and would have sought. So I'm out of that getting it together business. Now, for 12 years, I lived miserably, afraid, frightened, feeling totally inadequate. Guys would have girlfriends, and I was too afraid to go out with girls. I, didn't, I was too afraid that I couldn't do what girls wanted you to do to them. I was afraid of that. I felt like a misfit most of the time. And then all at once, I got the courage to ask a girl <laughs> to go out. And she went out with me, and it was not, we had a wonderful time. You know. And I got ready to marry because, you know, I'm of the old school. If you go to bed with you, you're supposed to marry. <laughs> Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Because mamas tell us that, you know, if, if you mess with a girl, son, you got to, you got to marry her. And we live that way. You know, and we live with the guilt of that. It never occurs to us they're there because they want to be there. That doesn't matter. You know, that never occurs to us. But Mama said, that's what you do. You're going to get. You're going to get. The Lord's watching you. And so I met this girl. And because we did what human beings do, my mind said, you've got to marry her. Now, what we found out that she was a streetwalker on Western Avenue in Los Angeles. <laughs> And for me to marry her would have been the first central racial marriage in the state of Nevada. You know, and uh, so that didn't come up. But God knew how to get my attention. 
sometime later, he had us up here in Vancouver, Canada. I saw my wife for the first time. She was just a young thing. <laughs> With a bunch of other girls, you know. But the next time I saw her was in Portland, Oregon. I was on a work in Portland, Oregon. She walked in the door. She'd come to pick up a girlfriend. And I know beyond any shadow of any shadow of a doubt, it was God's voice to me. God said to me, and I know it was God, that's the girl you marry. And it was like I just went crazy. You know, you know how you get that way? That was the right girl or what I just I was that way and they had to hold me down. I just it just it was right. I don't know it was right. God had got my attention again, you know. And I did a wild, we did some wild letter writing, you know, that, you know, that kind of, I was like a flower in Cypress mouth fart, that's what I was, you know. <laughs> and uh, I wrote her these great flowery letters, she still has them, with two, two vessels on the ship sailing through the night, all that kind of flowery crap, you know. But, you know, you know I do what I had to do, you know. And uh, we got married. She ran away from home. Her trousseau was two blue bank blankets <laughs> and a box of old records. We still have the records, too, mind you. Just got rid of the blankets before we moved up here. Now, the amazing thing about that, I tell you that story, is because when she ran away from home and we married in Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon is a very important place to me in my life. I met her really in Portland, Oregon. We got married in Portland, Oregon. And just a few weeks ago, I was able to make amends to her father. I have some elaborate ideas about that. You know, you know how we drunk, we, we just, we just get things all big and make it so beautiful and so majestic. Because his daughter ran away from home and I had never really asked him for his daughter's hand in marriage. Last year, I was right here, a young man called me and in a very formal way asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage. Something I wasn't capable of doing with Ruby's dad. And I was able to tell him whatever makes her happy, that's fine with me. A few weeks ago, you know, I was telling Ruby, on our 30th wedding anniversary, let's have this nice big party. Let's go through a little ceremony. We'll go through, we'll renew our wedding vows. And, you know, I'll give your father that thing I stole from him. I'll give him that thing of walking his daughter down an aisle and giving her to me. And she abruptly said, in front of everybody, no less. No, I'm not going to do that. You know, tell me privately, you know, don't wait till get a lot of Al-Anons and A's around and say, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. Very testy when they get support, you know. <laughs> and I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, when she says, no, I don't want to do that, I have to look and say, no, she don't want to do that. That's all I want my business. And so a few weeks ago, I was driving him down to a doctor. And I've always learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, you can't make amends all the time. 
But I've learned you have to be willing to when the time comes. And God presented me the time. And it didn't matter what he said. didn't matter how he took it. I didn't care. Because I had the opportunity to make a 30-year amends almost. The time was right. And I said to him, I'm sorry. That we got married the way we got married. And I stole the right from you of walking your daughter down the aisle. And I told him how blessed I would be to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle and know how you must have felt. And I know that's, that's something. There's a guy in AA. He's dead now. He's called the salesman. What was his name? The salesman used to talk so much. You guys... No, no, no. Anyway, he used to talk so much about his little, his little girl. He used to, I heard him say it many, many years ago. He used to talk all the time. And he talked about what A he had done for him. That he had the opportunity to experience walking his little knock-kneed girl down the aisle, giving her to that boom. You know? And all at once, here it is. I can experience what that guy talked about. I can experience that. I didn't experience that with the first daughter of my, of my first marriage. But because God is infinite wisdom said, my son, you deserve this. I'm going to give you this opportunity to walk that little daughter down the aisle. This is the abortion that didn't happen. God is infinite wisdom. You know, one more drink and I'd have missed it all. One more drink. I'm grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. We have another one home. Her name is Christy. <laughs> Christy's crazy. <laughs> Christy's adorably crazy. We had to live normal lives, and we don't know how to do that. We've had to learn how to live together. You see, I have found out in Alcoholics Anonymous that I am encased on a lot of old ideas, old ones. And they're the old ideas that come from a long, long way back. And I've had to learn to recognize those old ideas, not to be able to change them, but to accept them as old ideas so I can have a choice. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous fearful. I didn't know I was fearful. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous guilty. And the greatest fear I had was the fear of being found out. The fear of being found out. The fear that I would have to let you see me as best I could let you see me with what knowledge I had about myself. Those are the fears that were killing me. The guilt, the shame I had. The shame of disappointing a mother and a father. You know, because I didn't come up the way they thought I should come up and the pain I caused them. I came here with that. And it was compounded by more shame and more guilt. It just laid on layer after layer after layer after layer. And the more I began to undress myself in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more I allowed you to see me as best I could, the guilt lessened. 
the shame lesson, the fear lesson. This lady used to tell me, Milton, time makes the difference in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have yet to see a newcomer who doesn't want to instantly be an old timer. I know that's what I was like. I wanted to think I had my stuff together at AA when I got here. People used to say to me, Milton, you've been around a long time. And I would say, no, but I knew so much. Newcomers know so much. God, they know everything. Just like Chrissy. <laughs> when Chrissy was 13, 14 years old, she knew everything. Every 13-year-old knows everything. And you tell them something, I know. Well, you know, I know. And it finally occurred to me, and I asked her, I said, you know, I think I, I kind of figure out what this I know means. She said, I said, I know means shut up. She said, that's right. <laughs> but you see, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have two daughters I love implicitly, don't want nothing from them. All I want to do is give me. I don't know what they should or shouldn't do. I don't know what any member of Alcoholics Anonymous should or shouldn't do. I am told in Alcoholics Anonymous, my responsibility to my fellow man is to share my experience, my strength, and my hope. I don't know what you've got to do. I don't care what you've got to do. All I want to say is just don't drink. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, uh, there's a guy... And I learned a lot in alcoholics. Now, there's a guy who said, no, I want you to help me. I don't, I, I don't know how to sponsor people. I don't. Some people do. I don't. But what I've learned in alcoholics now is to try to be the best friend I know how to be. And not waste my time judging. Because judging is a total waste of time. And this guy would say to me, Milton, I got so and so and so. I'd say, well, you know, just don't drink. And he'd come to me time and time again, and the only thing I could say to him was, just don't drink. Two years, I told his man, just don't drink. He served almost 14 years. The name of the game is you don't drink. That's the name of the game. I don't know what to do with this. Marriage was falling apart in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to my sponsor and told him about this marriage getting ready to fall apart. You know how it is when you get sober. And your wife starts talking back. I learned, I, not, I learned a lot from my wife. I'm going to tell you something. It wasn't for Al-Anon in that home. We couldn't be together. We just couldn't. Because one thing I found out in AA is I stay sober. I must change and I grow in spite of me. And if they don't have something going for them, they stay where they are. And the gap widens and it widens and it widens. And pretty soon, if you're an alcoholic like me, you walk around saying, well, who needs this crap? I'm sober. I'm going to meetings. I'm bringing money home. I'm doing the things sober fathers do. And she's talking about yesterday. Who needs it? And I went to my sponsor. I said, Don, we're having trouble in this marriage. And he looked at me and said, Nelson, I'm going to tell you something. The last person in the world you should go to about a marriage is another alcoholic. Because we don't have great track records. <laughs> he said, look at me, I've been married four times. But what Don did, he sent, me, sent us to someone that could help us. Teach us how to fight because we didn't know how to fight. Because that's a part of life. 
Slowly I began to know I wouldn't marry anybody like me. That's why she's different. I couldn't stand another me. And we learned how to kind of communicate and talk with each other about feelings. I learned from her because she would put me on one side of the bed and she on the other side of the bed. And say, I got something I want to tell you. And she would say, you don't have to change. You don't have to do anything about it. All I want you to do is just listen. Just listen to me. And don't say a word. Please don't say anything. Just listen. And I'll tell you something. The ho- See, alcoholics know everything. The hardest thing I had to do was to listen. And I listened. And I remember just as clear as the day, it took every fiber of my being not to straighten her out. I'm serious. I'm not kidding you. Because, after all, I do have my shit together. <laughs> right? You know? And I remember that. And shortly after, I heard a, a, an ex-priest, his name is John, said that anyone was talked, he said, all I pray for is God to help me to be a better listener because the healing comes in the listening. I said, yeah, the healing comes in the listening. And so today, I'm healing a little more because you're listening. It's that simple. Because I don't know what you've got to do. All I want somebody is please, for heaven's sake, listen to me. Listen to what's going on inside. I don't know what it is. I don't know what to do about it. And this feeling is so strange to me. I don't know what to do. I want to tell you this is how I feel. And I keep telling you how I feel. And then those magnificent strands of music that come, you look at me and say, yeah, well, me too. That's the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. Me too. I'm not different. You're not alone. You're not different. Only because you listen. So that's what I try to do. I try to listen to people. And share then my experience, strength, and hope. And let them make the choice. I don't know what they've got to do. All I know is, you just don't drink. No matter what, you don't drink. And this stuff about your ass falling off, it will not fall off if you've given it to God. <laughs> it's his, it's not yours. My relationship today is not with Ruby. It is not with you. My relationship is with me and God. Because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous trying to have a relationship with everybody around me. I tried to the best of my ability, and it kept me drunk, it kept me stumbling around in darkness, it kept me feeling less than, and that I needed more of whatever I needed. And my book I read tells me that I don't need to even trust you anymore, I don't need to trust her anymore. Because when I used to trust, I used to come back and say, well, look what they did to me. I gave them everything, I trusted them with all I had, but look what they did to me. Thank God that book says, trust God in clean house. doesn't say trust humans, because we're all very, very fallible. We're all very, very weak. So today I've learned to trust God. Not all the time implicitly, but to the best of my ability. I know that he will take care of me. He took care of me when I was stumbling around out in the streets and the bricks. 
He took care of me when I couldn't take care of myself. And now that I'm trying to live a life that pleases him, he will take care of me. I have a great relationship with my wife. That's only because I have a great relationship with God. You see, because I have found out who the enemy is. <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> I've also found out who the hero is, and that's me too. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. I got a little sign. It's in the car now. Ruby hasn't noticed yet. She'll talk about it eventually when she sees it. <laughs> I just used to, used to talk about my little sign. I had a little car that I would had on the steering wheel, fasten seatbelt. And uh, she would look at that. She would tell me, she'd look at it and say, oh, he's so cute. But when her time of the month came, she'd say, oh, he's a simple son of a bitch, you know. He can't even remember the time as seatbelt. But I have that little sign I put in my car, and uh, it reads this way. I have one on the mirror, especially when I brush my teeth so I can look at it. The little reading says, you are now looking at the problem. You see, because I'm the problem. There were no problems outside of me. It's always me. I'm convinced of that. It's my attitude about myself. My attitude about my relationship with God. That's the problem. And today I'm my problem. She's never going to be my problem. She can't be my problem. She's only my problem I make. My children are my problems. I make them my problem. They're my problem. I heard another friend. I just read, listened to a tape an old friend of mine. He said, one thing about problems with us and alcoholics not us is that we take our problems personal. He said, if you think about it, Jesus Christ had problems. <laughs> so problems are a way of life. Problems are a way of life. If I don't take them personal, I'll be all right. You know. It's like a... It's, it's like a pile of crap. I, 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 I use little pictures. If you take a pile of... Better yet, I'll use another word, poop. Okay. If you leave it in the ground, it eventually dissolves and disintegrates and goes into the ground. And from that comes a blade of grass. Beautiful blade of grass. Now, the trick... Is if you stick a stick in it and stir it up, it stinks. So one thing about problems, if you don't want to stink, don't stir it. It'll go away. It'll go away. You ain't going to have it but a day at a time. Anyhow, if there is a problem. I was talking to old Al. <laughs> I've been where Al was. Al was talking about the dilemma he had about the decision he had to make. <laughs> and he was talking oh, up and down, up and down. Up and I was in the same place a few days ago about this embezzlement thing that came up on an FBI report. I was writing such a script. They had me going back to Los Angeles. And I had said, oh, my God, I've got to go back there. My life's dream. I wanted to live here in Canada. And here it is being threatened. I had written a script. And I had to realize there wasn't a problem. Nobody told me to go back to Canton, go back to Los Angeles. Nobody said they're going to put me in jail. But I had written all that stuff down up here. The most dangerous thing I've got is this. <laughs> this head of mine, i got a guy that says, I'm going to say it the way. He says this, and I believe it because it, made, it was the most, one of the most intelligent things I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, and this guy named Tony, he said, Milton, I figured things out. He's not a couple of years old, so, but even these newer people tell you a lot of stuff if you listen. Yeah. 
He said, Milton, I figured out. I said, what is it, Tony? He said, I'm convinced that my head has a contract on my ass. And I know that's fair. I know that's fair. Because my head is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But somehow today, it's like an old movie. It's like a movie. If you know anything about the movie business, there's this little slaughter movie has a little scene. Armos here, armos there. This little shot has a scene, you know. And I've watched the scenes today that go on up here. Sometimes the Supreme Court meets and you see them talking back and forth across. They have this big meeting. The Supreme Court just goes on. And sometimes they get mad and they argue. And blah, 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 blah. You just, it's just going, on, blah, blah, just going on and on and on. And because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I learned to watch it. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't have to do anything it says. I used to think I had to do whatever this genius mind says. I have a genius type mind. It's not a genius mind. I got the kind of mind that makes puking make sense. You know, I make going to jails make sense. That's what this kind of head up here does to me. And I've learned not to listen to it, just watch it like a movie. And don't do anything yourself. One more drink and I'd have missed that too. I'm glad that I have the opportunity to share an Alcoholics Anonymous to be a part of. I'm a person that likes to do an Alcoholics Anonymous because that's what they told me. When I got here, the guy said to me, Milton, quit listening to you. Because listening to you brought you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, well, Wendell, who will listen to? He said, everybody else except you. I said, what about my wife? He said, and her too. So I've been listening to them. Because in order for me to do that, I had to do, I had to change. You see, people talk, I don't know, I have my opinion about what spiritual life is in Alcoholics Anonymous. I found it on page 25. That's where I found it. Because the spirituality that happens to you in Alcoholics Anonymous is not one of a religious variety. The book doesn't say that. It's of a religious variety. It says about altering your attitude. It's a change of attitude toward God, to God's universe and your fellow man. That's what the book says. It took me a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous to read that and understand that because I would never talk about I live a spiritual life, although I was living one. Because I didn't know what it was, because it was confused with a religious life in my mind. Until I saw that in the book, and I read the book, and I'm one that tell you it reads different all the time. But I read the book, and when I saw that, it was like a major discovery. I said, oh, it's in the book. It makes sense what Wendell used to say to me. You know, when you knew you, you think you, think you know something. And I'd come up with these great statements, and I'd hear somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous say, and I'd just flab it off, you know. And uh, Wendell would say to me, is it in the book? <laughs> and I'd, he'd force me to go back and read the book. And I learned to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned to read the black letters. You know, and as a result of that, I began to find the simplicity for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a simple program. It's me who wants to complicate it up. It's me who will get hung up in these. Now this may be old. I don't care. 
You hear all these great terms nowadays, these hospital terms, about dysfunctional this and dysfunctional that, and you hold your folks hostage for everything, you know. If my family was dysfunctional, it was simply because I was in it. It's that simple. My mom and daddy never wanted me to be an alcoholic. There are very few mothers in the world that bring a child in the world and say, ha, I want you to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the last place in the world they want you to be. I didn't want to be here. Alcohol drove me here. You know, I've learned to keep it simple in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I keep it simple by watching, watching people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Wendell said to me, just do what you see sober people do. He did not tell me to figure out anything. Just do what you see sober people do. And I began to do what I saw sober people do. And pretty soon, you get caught up in this thing. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is a happening. It happens to you. You don't happen to it. It happens to you. There's an old black term you hear guys talking about, hey, what's happening, man? Alcoholics Anonymous is what's happening. Make no bones about it. It happens to you so that we can sit here together on a Sunday morning and kind of rejoice, if you will, in God's blessings in our lives. To be able to be given the privilege of knowing who you are, what you are, and where you came from. Who you are, what you are, and where you came from. That you can do anything in this world if you remember who you are and what you are and where you came from. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. Yeah. Not to be what I'd like to be. Not to be a guy called Ruby's husband. Not to be Roseanne and Chrissy's father. It's the first, number one, be an alcoholic. Because that's what I am. Who gets a chance to be Ruby's husband? Who gets a chance to be Ruby's, to be the Christian Roseanne's father? Who gets a chance to do these things? See, because one more drink and I'd have missed it all. I'd like to close with this. There's an old gospel song they used to sing many years ago. And it was a song that the slaves picked up when they were picking cotton down there for master. <laughs> they called him. And he would leave the church door open so that the master could see who was picking cotton and who wasn't picking cotton. And they had these old African chants. And they'd hear little excerpts from the Bible out there. And they would pick up a word here and put it to some of the chant here. And put that's, how you know, that's how some of the spirituals were born. And one of the spirituals, the words went like this. Old freedom. Old freedom. Oh, freedom over me, my Lord. And before I'd be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. You see, because slaves knew all about slavery. And before they would spend another day in slavery, they'd rather be dead and buried in their graves. So they'd go home to their Lord and be free. Because where God is, freedom is. 
Martin Luther King ended one of his many statements like this. He said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Thank you. On behalf of the Comox Valley Rally Committee and on behalf of everybody that participated in the rally, I would like to uh, present this gift.